Well, uh, what I was going to tell you before we got started is that uh, the 5K in Windsor was yesterday, and uh, you guys are graced to have been led in worship by the fastest man in Windsor, Jonathan, and you're, uh, you're graced to be preached to by the sorest man in Windsor today, and so you're in, uh, you're in good company. We also have the, uh, we have the fastest man in Windsor. We also have the fastest old man in Windsor, and uh, I'll leave you to figure out who that is, uh, but he did win his age group. I won't tell you it's blunt since some of y'all are looking at me like you don't know who it is, but uh, it was him. Anyways, uh, good time yesterday at the, uh, at the run. Enjoyed seeing a bunch of you guys out there. And I'm thinking maybe next year we might be able to do something with, uh, uh, with our church maybe at the 5K. Since the rest of the community is out there, uh, there might be something we can do to uh, maybe promote the gospel at the 5K. We'll see. Uh, we, know the, we know the race organizer, so we might have a shoe in. Uh, to do something good. Anyways, if you would, take your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And while you're headed to Ephesians chapter 6, you're going to want to keep your, your thumb there. And then we're going to trace, we're going to do things a little bit different today. I'm going to start in Ephesians 6. I'm going to read Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And then we're not going to go uh, kind of line by line and word by word like we normally do. We're going to trace a few themes through scripture. I'm going to take you through uh, some of the lives of some of the men in scripture, and we're going to look at how well they did as a parent. And uh, you'll get to see that uh, if, if you don't feel like things are going too well for you, you are in good company with the uh, dads in scripture. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a place to be able to freely worship you. Thank you that we don't have to worry about the things that much of the world does, but Lord, we can, uh, we can legally read your word, we can share your gospel, and we can proclaim it wherever we want. And so Lord, we pray that you would, you would meet with us. Lord, I pray that you would feed your people, and Lord, I pray that you would use me, uh, and that you would speak through me in this next hour. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were a dad, uh, if you have been a dad or if you want to be a dad, uh, you're not in real good shape if you want to look to Scripture or if you want to look to the New Testament for specific commands for you as dads. Uh, the New Testament just doesn't blatantly say, dads, do this. So we're in kind of a tough spot. You actually come to Scripture and there's two places, Ephesians 6 chapter 4, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and Colossians 3, 21, those are the two places in the New Testament where the Bible specifically says, fathers, do this. But it doesn't have a lot to say when it says do this. Mainly, it says, don't do this. And so here's your command. And we'll start in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so last week we spent some time talking about what are some ways that fathers can do this? How can we as fathers not, make sure I get the word right, not provoke our children to anger? Some of your, your Bibles probably say don't exasperate your children. Well, what this is talking about is don't Constantly do things to aggravate your children. Uh, if, if you knew me before I got saved, one of my natural abilities was to, within seconds of meeting someone, know exactly what got on their nerves and be able to do it to a T. 
Uh, it just seemed to be that when I was, a lot of you teachers know that kid. Uh, I was that, that kid in school that knew exactly what buttons to push on the teacher, and she was aggravated for the rest of the day. Uh, I wish that, that I didn't do that, but that's what I did. That's what kids do. And so this says that we as fathers should not do that to our children. You shouldn't know what pushes your kids' buttons and then push the buttons. So I finished last week's sermon. I gave you eight different ways that, uh, that fathers... And I told you also last week, if you're a mom, you're not off the hook. This word that's translated fathers here is talking to the father as the head of the family, but it also encompasses the mom as well. There's a place in Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews is talking about the parents of Moses, and the same Greek word is used that's translated fathers here. So other places in Scripture, this word that says fathers in the beginning of verse 4 is translated parents in other places. But here... He's, they're talking about specifically the dad is the head of the house. So here you go. Here's eight ways that we talked about. And we made it through five, but I want to, I want to tack on the last three. We said one way that fathers can provoke their children to anger is excessive discipline. Uh, that doesn't mean that you don't discipline your children. Uh, the Proverbs are very clear that if you spoil the rod, if you spare the rod, you'll spoil the child. And so Proverbs wants you to be active in disciplining your child. But with this excessive discipline, we said that if a little bit's good, it doesn't mean that a lot is better. So you always need to make sure that the punishment fits the crime. Inconsistency. This is number two. Dads, moms, if you're an inconsistent parent, if you're a lazy parent, this is an easy way to frustrate your children. You want to sit in your chair and bark out orders to your children. That never works. You don't want your supervisor to sit in his chair and bark out orders to you. Your kids are the same way. Uh, unkindness. We said that the golden rule for you as parents applies as well, that you need to do unto your children as you would have them do unto you. And so, yes, you do have a place of authority in their life, but you need to treat them the way that you would want to be treated as well. Uh, and this doesn't mean that you are their friend. This means that you need to be kind and I told you that when you are disciplining your children, the fruit of the spirits still apply in your life. You as a Christian, the first fruit of the spirit is love. And so whenever you do anything, disciplining your children, it needs to be out of a heart of love, not anger or frustration. Uh, favoritism. I told you that uh, when Isaac had Jacob and Esau, that he showed favoritism towards one. And uh, that frustrated the other. If you have multiple children and you show favoritism towards one, I mean, my mom does. I'm the favorite child in our family. Everybody knows that. But it, I can see how that would frustrate all of my other siblings to know that, that I'm the favorite. Just kidding. Uh, you guys, loosen up a little. Shake it out. It's good. We're going we're gonna to have a good time today. If you're a parent and you show favoritism to one of your children, you are definitely, over time, going to frustrate the other ones. And you're going to lead them. You're going to, you're going to provoke them to anger. Uh, number five, we talked about overindulgence. When you as a parent spoil your children above and beyond what is necessary. Now listen, we all have different, uh, we all have different levels of income. We all have different uh, families that we've been brought up in. Some of us can't do the same things for our children that others can. That doesn't mean that if you have the resources to give your kids a, a good, comfortable life, that that's a wrong thing. But whatever category you find yourself in, whatever bracket you're in, that you can still overindulge your kids. It's possible to do a lot with a little. 
And so even if you may not have a lot, in some ways it could be possible for you to overindulge your kids. Sometimes we do this by behavior. We allow them to get away with things that they shouldn't. And I, I accused some of you grandparents of maybe being, uh, allowing your ch- grandchildren to overindulge when it comes to behavior and things like that. And I told you, I, if I didn't, maybe I should have. I wanted to. I think when you come to the end of your years as a grandparent, now, it, hopefully it's clear that I'm not a grandparent. Uh, I haven't been there. Hopefully when you get to your end of your years as a grandparent, you would want to be known not as the grandparent who let them eat candy before dinner, who got them the four-wheelers, who got them the go-karts, who always took them hunting. Hopefully that's not what you're always after. Hopefully you'll want to go down in history as the godly grandparent who spent quality time as opposed to just buying gifts. See, with this overindulgence, it's easy for us as Americans to buy love instead of show love. And so be, make your character what your kids remember as opposed to your checkbook what they remember. Following me? So hopefully at your funeral when they're crying, they're crying not because all of their toys and presents are gone. They're crying because they miss you and who you are. I would much rather my kids enjoy me than the things that I can give them. That's something to talk about over lunch. So now we get back to number six, overprotection. This is one way that we as dads can definitely frustrate our children, overprotect them. You see, your kids are growing at a normal pace. And we as parents, you as moms, need to allow them to grow up at a decent pace. I remember one time uh, I used to always go over to my grandmother's house and help her cook Thanksgiving dinner. And so my brother and I would go to her house. We'd be fixing Thanksgiving dinner. And we did it ever since we were a kid. And uh, grandma was probably a lot like some of you grandmas are where you're particular. And just because you're particular doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. But one of the things that we needed to do was we needed to make this dish called pistachio pudding, where you take the jello, you take the marshmallows, and you just mix it all together. It's really straightforward. You drop a bunch of stuff in a dish, and you mix it up. And Grandma, Grandma didn't want me to do that. And she didn't trust me to do that. And, and finally, in a, in a really nice way, I said, Grandma, I drove here. I can take the pudding and I can drop it in the bowl and I can mix it together and it's going to turn out okay. And she was like, oh, I just forgot. I just remember you. You'd be in just a little guy yesterday. And I, and I was, I was really nice. And we were like, we understand grandma, but you know, they trusted me with a vehicle to get 30 minutes to your house. You can at least trust me with a bowl of pudding. And if we mess it up, I'll drive to the store and, and buy one if we mess it up too much. And so you can see that that's easy with grandma sometimes. It's easy to bear with grandma when she doesn't want you to grow up because you're her grandchild. But when we as parents don't allow our kids to grow up at a normal pace, when we're always holding them back, that's a bad thing. That bothers them sometimes. And so you need to to be extra cautious of this, not to provoke them to anger by not letting them grow up. Uh, I've got down here, you, um, sometimes you just have to let the bird out of the cage. And then the problem with this overprotection is, is that there comes a time when you as a parent, where you don't get to protect anymore the way that you used to. Uh, If you're here and you have children who are are under 18, you are only a few years away from those college years. And you don't get to be as protected as you want to be. And so it's your job as a parent to protect early on, 
protect your child when they're growing up and then train them in the way that they should go so that you can give them plenty of slack. So when they do go off to college, it can be a good experience and you're not, you're not overprotecting them so they get there and rebel. That's one of the problems that we, uh, we face today a lot uh, in the church is that sometimes we keep our kids in such a tight box that they get a little bit of freedom and they go nuts. And so this is one thing that we as a parent could, could stand to do. And if you have mastered this, if you figured this one out, let me know. Because this is a tough one. None of these things I'm saying are black and white. And they're different for every kid. And so you can't, you can't be legalistic about this thing. You've got to know your child. You've got to know who you are and to know how your family operates. Number seven, pressure to achieve is one way that you can, you can provoke your children to anger. Uh, I say this and the kids always like it. And I say this and some of the parents always dislike it. Um, I don't know if I would want somebody to say this to my kids or not, but this is a true statement. Not all students are A students, okay? Not all students are excellent when it comes to academics. So what does this mean? This may mean that you have a student, and if they make C's all the way through school, you need to throw a party for them because they might not be academic students. They might not be great at things that the world says they have to be great at. However, you may have a student that makes C's, and they need to be grounded because you know they're not applying themselves as much as they need to. Some of your kids, you need to just be happy when they make it out of high school alive. Some of you need to be happy when your kids graduate from graduate school and go on to get PhDs and doctorates in all sorts of other subjects. Okay? Some of your students are geared to make things with their hands. Some of them are geared to think with their minds. Not all people are the same. And just because we're all judged on the same scale in public school and elementary school and, and on up through high school doesn't mean that all of our kids are the same and we expect the same things out of them. All of our kids are different. And you need to figure out what strengths your children have and you need to praise them for the strengths that they have and then you need to work on the weaknesses that they have. Okay? This is all of our kids different. So pressure to achieve. Uh, sometimes we do this in sports. We want our kids to achieve and we want them to do things that we wish we would have done. Maybe. There's no dad saying amen there. But sometimes we want them to go on and do better things that we did. Listen, dad, maybe your student is better than you at a sport. Maybe he's not as good as you were at a sport. Maybe he doesn't even like sports. Don't just love your kids for what they can do on a field, but love your kids for who they are. This is the same thing I said when grandparents, I want your kids to love you for who you are, not what you can do for them. And in the same manner, parents need to love their children for who they are, for their character, as opposed to what they can achieve. Follow me? There's a big difference here, real big difference. Because when your kid strikes out in the bottom of the ninth inning and they lose the game... You need to be just as proud of them then as when they decided to live a pure and noble lifestyle. Follow me? Don't miss this. This is incredibly important. Here we go. Last one, number eight, hypocrisy. In the years that I spent in youth ministry, this was the big one, hypocrisy. You want to know somebody who can spot a hypocrite across a room, your kid, and you're not beyond judgment just because you're their parent they know if you are a type of person who does 
what they're saying to do or if you're a person who says one thing and does another. Fact. And if you are a hypocrite as a parent, good luck trying to enforce standards with your kids because they know that you are not living up to the things that you say they're supposed to be living up to. But I'm sure none of us do that, right? Here we go. Let's keep going. So those are the eight ways that we as dads and we as parents can frustrate our kids. Now let's move on to, um, to what I had for this week. I stopped last week a little bit early, but I wanted to finish up those. Turn over to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Now, one thing that you'll find when you go through the scriptures are that dads, good dads, are vacant from scripture. As I've searched through the scriptures, I can't find one man who was a good father. Now, could I have missed one? Yes. But the bulk of men in scripture were poor fathers. It's just a fact. You look at all of the kings of Israel. If you have a good king and then what comes after a good king? A bad king. You have a string of bad kings. Then what happens? A good king. And then what about a son? Nope. Bad king. There's a lack of men in Scripture who raise up God-fearing sons. There's a lack of God-fearing men in the church who raise up God-fearing sons also. That's a fact. It is a rarity. It should be the exception that a child rebels. But it's normal now for godly men to have children who grow up and they're not in the church. And so when we're going through this, think we need to be the ones to turn the tables. You have uh, Aaron. He's going to be the first dad that we talk about. You could talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we're going to talk more about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, when we start going through the Bible as a whole. But you have Aaron. Aaron's the first high priest. You guys remember Aaron and Moses? Well, Aaron's the first high priest, and Aaron has four sons. Two of his sons, God ends up killing himself. They don't make it out of their 30s probably, but God sees fit to kill them on the spot. So Aaron raises four sons. Two of them go into the tabernacle. They, they immediately disobey God by offering a strange fire on the altar. God takes them out like that. Then you have two more of Aaron's sons who go on to do good and godly things. But listen to what the scripture says about Aaron. This is Exodus 24. Exodus 24, verse 9. says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets of the law and the commandment which I have written for their instructions. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. 
Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So here's the scene. You've got Moses. You've got Aaron. They, they and the 70 elders of the, of the nation of Israel go to the mountain and they eat with God. They share a meal with God himself. Then Moses goes on the rest of the way up the mountain. And it says that the sight from where everyone was standing on earth was like a consuming fire was on top of the mountain where Moses was. And the glory of the Lord was on the mountain. And so this is an incredible scene. You have never seen anything like this in your entire life. So then you flip over a couple pages to Exodus chapter 32. So Aaron was there. Aaron ate with God. He shared a meal with God, and then he was put in charge, him and her, by God while Moses was up on the mountain. And so here is Moses on the mountain. Aaron's left as the leader. Chapter 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of of him. Verse 2, Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now in that verse 6 when it says they sat down to eat and rose up to play, there's all sorts of sexual sins that are, that are assumed in this passage by the way the language is written. And so here you have Aaron has just done what? He shared a meal with God. It, there is a consuming fire on the mountain. Moses goes into the cloud and he's meeting with God. And God says, okay, while I'm meeting with Moses on behalf of the people, I want you, Aaron, to be in charge. The people come to Aaron and they say, we don't know what happened to Moses. He's gone. What are you going to do for us? We want to worship gods. And so Aaron doesn't say this. He doesn't say, guys, chill out. Me and 70 other men here ate with God and shared a meal. And now Moses is on the mountain meeting with God. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, take off your gold from your wife's ears and give it to me. And I'm going to create a golden calf and we will worship that golden calf. And so he, he just ate with God less than 40 days ago. He ate with God. And now what's he doing? He's making a golden calf and he presents it to the people. And then he builds an altar and they offer sacrifices to the golden calf. And this golden calf for the next several hundred years will lead the nation astray. And so why do you think that Aaron's children went astray? Because Aaron didn't have a backbone. Aaron wasn't man enough to stand on what he saw God do with his own eyes. Instead, he did whatever would make people happy. Men, the question for you is, what kind of man are you? Are you a follower? Do you want to see what the other 70 men are doing and you want to follow them and be right behind them? Or are you willing to take a stand and say, no, I know what I know. I just ate with God last week.
I just ate with God two weeks ago. God is doing these things and we need to be patient and wait on God. Are you the type of man who will do whatever the group wants you to do so you can maintain popularity? If you're a popular dad, you may not be a good dad. That's a hard thing to say. But the most popular people around are normally, normally men who compromise. I know churches all around where people get into sin. And none of the men stand up and say, but God said this. And what do they do? They sit back and they stay popular and the church dies. And then do you know what happens? The women get a backbone and they stand up and try to stand for what's right. And then everybody gets, gets mad at the women because they're trying to take over. But sometimes you can't blame them because men have dropped the ball most of the time and women are picking it up. And we in Scripture are commanded to be men of God who will stand on God's word, not be followers and try to be popular. That's the truth. Here we go. Go over to David. While you're flipping over to 1 Kings chapter 1, I'm going to tell you about a couple other people. You have a priest named Eli. Eli is the, is the priest who's going to watch over the tabernacle. And time and time and time again, people are going to bring food. They're going to bring offerings to the tabernacle. And Eli has two sons. And Eli allows his two sons to take their portion or to take God's portion from the offerings. So here's kind of what goes on. Uh, you bring a pack of steaks to the tabernacle, right? Most of you guys are not into to raising cows and, and livestock and things like that. But you bring your, your animal to the altar and you bring your whole animal. And the best part of the animal is for God. But what Eli was allowing his sons to do was Eli's sons were trimming off the best portions of the sacrifice. And they were keeping it for themselves. And then they were offering the rest of the animal to God. You following me? This is an incredibly grievous thing because God wants your best. If you're giving God anything other than your best... You should, you should question even giving him anything at all. So his sons are trimming off the best, and it says that Eli became a very fat man. And when Eli dies, he's actually so fat that he falls off of a chair or falls off of a log and breaks his neck because of his weight. And so he has, he has eaten the best of everything at the tabernacle for his life. And do you know what happens to his sons? His sons don't follow his ways. Actually, they take his ways and they go even farther in and it says that his sons used to take advantage of the women who would come and work at the tabernacle. And so, yes, Eli is allowing his sons to do one small sin. And then what do his sons do? His sons end up having sexual relations with the women who are coming and serving at the front of the tabernacle. And so if you're a man and you will allow your children to compromise in a small area, who are you as a man to enforce it when they do bigger things? If you can't be trusted with the little things of the law, certainly you can't be trusted with the big things. Following me? And so we as parents, we as, as men who are leading our children, we need to be men who follow this book. And something has been eating me alive, and, and I've got to, I'm not going to get on a soapbox, but it's just something I want you to think about. Sometimes I preach about things that may be wrong that you like. You following me? 
I do my best not to give you my opinion when I'm standing here. I do my best to give you what God says, right? And if I, if I tell you something's my opinion, I formed my opinion off of this. Dads and moms, when you enjoy something that I tell you that Scripture says is wrong, and your kids ask you, why do we listen to what Pastor Bobby says in a lot of things, but not everything? You need to be real careful that your answer isn't because we like doing that. Because this whole Christian walk isn't about you. It's about holiness and you striving after holiness. And so when you trust what the pastor is preaching on for eternal life, but you don't trust him in things because you like them, you're in a real touchy place. What you're doing is you're teaching your kids that it's okay to pick and choose what you want to follow. And we got a group of people who have picked and choose. And do you know what they did? It was called, oh, shucks, I just forgot the name of it. But let's just call it liberalism in a nutshell. Christian liberalism, where you say that some parts of God's word are inspired by God and other parts are not. Listen, we as a church, we as God's people believe that this whole thing is inspired by God and we don't get to pick and choose. You want to fire a pastor real quick? Fire one who picks and chooses what to preach. Fire one who won't preach on something that's hard. Fire one who won't make you feel bad every once in a while. This book changes lives. You want to raise up the next generation to be godly? Follow every letter of this book. Don't pick and choose. When you start picking and choosing, you become God, not God. And your kids will notice. That's why revival breaks out when people get saved. Because adults get saved and they want to follow Christ. And then they look at you and they say, hey, God's, work, God's book says this. Why don't you do that? Now, that's convicting right there. That's real convicting. And your kids will do it to you if you listen to them. So Eli doesn't raise godly children. Actually, Eli and his whole line get cut off from ministering at the tabernacle. You, have, uh, you also have Samuel. Remember, in the beginning of the book of Samuel, it's all about the prophet Samuel. Well, Samuel's about to die. And what do the people say to Samuel? Samuel, you're an old man. And your children don't walk in your ways. Appoint a king for us. Because we don't want to follow your kids. What a tragedy. What an absolute tragedy. David, you guys, I'm not sure how much you know about the life of David. Uh, we're going to be over in First Kings, which is going to take a minute for us to get there. So you guys might have already beat me there. First Kings chapter 1. Now, some of this is going to be tough. I'm going to talk about some things from David's life. And you may have already walked through a portion of David's like life that looks like what I'm talking about, okay? So keep in mind, give me the benefit of the doubt again. I told you before, always please give me the benefit of the doubt. There are some principles that we can take from David's life that are true. And even if maybe your life hasn't been perfect and you haven't been able to live up to these principles, God can still use you and work through you. It's not a lost cause, Okay, but these are going to be solid principles that anybody who's starting out can can go with. David had eight wives. David wasn't just married to Bathsheba, but he had eight wives. Principle number one from David's life. More than one wife is not going to be a good thing for raising up the godly generation. Okay, 
I don't know how anybody could take care of more than one wife. Scripture doesn't say only have one wife, but Scripture gives you tons of examples of people who it didn't work out for. Okay? Uh, it's just all over the place. I knew this one guy was a music leader in a church we went to, and he was always talking about more than one wife. The Bible never says it's wrong. And I was like, man, if you duplicated the marriage you have now, I don't know who would want to do that. But I just thought, man, you want to get into this again? What you have? No way. Anyways, one wife. You want to raise a godly, godly family? It's best if you take one wife and one wife only. And you stick with that wife for your whole life. For her whole life. Principle number two. David had 18 children. He had 18 children with eight different wives. Now this is tough. Some of you guys may not be here. But if you want the best shot possible of raising the next generation to be godly, have children with only one spouse. And the reason I say this is because when you, have, you begin to have children from multiple spouses, what happens naturally is jealousy and covetousness. And so kids are, are naturally competing with one another in what can be an unhealthy scenario. Now, can you raise a godly family if you have stepchildren and if you have maybe a second wife? Yes, without a doubt, God's grace and his mercy is abundant and he can help you through whatever you're going through. But I'm talking about ideals here. Ideally, you have one man and one woman married forever and they only have children with each other. That's going to be your best shot at a wise way of having a godly family. So what happens in the midst of David's life? You guys all know about David and Bathsheba. David had a son, and his son's name, I always get, get kids' names messed up, Amnon. This guy named Amnon, David's son, commits a sin. He actually rapes his sister. Okay? So Amnon rapes his sister, and what does David do about it? Nothing. David was a valiant warrior. I'm telling you, they would have these parades when the... When the the army would come back from battle and Saul would walk down the street and they would say, wow, Saul, you've killed your thousands of people. And then David would come down and the crowd would erupt and they would say, David, you've killed tens of thousands of people. And they would just praise him. David was a man who walked out as, he, as a boy in front of a nine and a half foot tall battle hardened warrior. And he cut that booger's head off and carried that across the city and set it in front of the king. But he was a passive dad. He was the man on the battlefield and he was a stud in the workplace, but he was a passive dad at home and he failed. His son raped his own daughter and he didn't so much as call him out on it. Then what happens? Absalom, another one of his sons, kills Abnon. So Absalom kills the brother. So because David was a passive father, it caused his sons to man up and take, take revenge for the daughter. You see, if you are a dad and you're passive and your kids are doing things and you're not engaged, it causes your other kids to take on roles that they shouldn't have to take. Dad, if you abandon your family and you leave for another woman, you're causing your family to take on roles that they shouldn't have to take on. Lastly, Absalom, uh, after he kills Amnon, tries to take over the throne of his dad. 
Absalom tries to take over the kingdom from David. Now, all of these things happened because David wasn't the man at home that he needed to be taking charge of his family. And so, listen to this. Listen to David's sins, and then listen to the sins of his family. And this is, what I, this is going to contrast with what I hear in churches all the time when things start to go bad. So, Amnon rapes his sister. David never scolds him. Maybe David doesn't scold him because, yes, his son raped his daughter, but David had an affair with Bathsheba. So the son took the daughter, but David took another man's wife. Absalom kills Amnon. David kills Uriah after his sin with Bathsheba. Absalom tries to take the throne of David. What did David take? David took Uriah's wife. Men, if you're going to be the men of God that you need to be, you can not stumble. And if you do stumble, you need to man up and you need to seek forgiveness and then you need to set the bar back high. Just because you mess up one time doesn't mean that you cannot judge over some sort of sin that's going on. Just because you did it one time a long time ago and you sought forgiveness for it doesn't mean that you can't keep the standard high. We are all failed humans. And so these churches that I'm telling you about that are all going downhill, some of them I know, uh, most of the things that end up happening is the pastor gets into some sort of sin. And they like the pastor. The church is growing. But no man is man enough to stand up and say, no, we have standards at this church. And if you don't live up to God's standards, you can't be the pastor anymore. None of the men stand up and do that. And so they all wallow around. And what happens? Nothing. You've got a movement of God that's quenched because men of God won't stand up and stand behind this. So you as a man shouldn't have to stand behind anyone. You should stand behind this. And if nobody follows you, you go off on your own. Be willing to stand alone if nobody else will stand with you. One of the reasons I think a lot of people in church are lost is because when Christianity gets hard, most people don't stand. They run. If you can't stand when it's hard, you're not standing at all. And this thing called Christianity is the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. Jesus said, follow me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, the Christian walk is, is fulfilling. It's refreshing. In some ways, it's rest. But on the other hand, it's a flat out war against sin. And men are not standing against sin in our society. And many times in our churches, men are not standing against sin. They just let it happen. Because that's the easy way to go. Next, listen to this. First Kings chapter 6, and this is about David. He also had another son, Adoniah. Chapter 1, verse 5. Now Adoniah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he has another son who wants to be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. Verse 6. His father David had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? David let his kids get away with all sorts of things. And what happens to Solomon? 
Solomon starts out like his dad, but as life goes on, as life begins to to cruise forward, what does Solomon do? He loses himself in the excess of his kingdom. David, his father, saw something and took it. He wanted it. He saw Bathsheba and he wanted her. When Solomon became rich, he saw things and he saw women he wanted and he took them. And it led him to ultimately have 400 wives. Men, are you living disciplined lives that your kids can follow? If you learn anything from David's life, learn this. Your kids are watching. Your life gets repeated whether you want it to or not. And you got one shot to be the man that God's called you to be. Or else generations after you are going to stumble and fall. So maybe you've missed a lot of years. Maybe you've messed up along the way. God is more than willing to forgive you for the things that you've done wrong. God is more than willing to give you the power and the strength to turn things around and to go from being a mediocre parent to being an incredible parent, to being a mediocre man, to being a godly man that people want to follow. Is your life one that if we were, if we were building our church, are you the type of person that we would want to multiply? Is your family makeup a type of family that we would want to multiply in the church? Truth be told, most men in the church, listen very carefully and hear my heart. Truth be told, most men's lives in the church are not worth duplicating. And that's a tough statement to say. Think about the people in the church that you look up to. And I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about other churches now too. Think about the godly men that you look up to. Why do you look up to them? Now, when I say these next few things, they are not pointed at anybody. We had a men's breakfast this morning. Do you look up to men because every year for 50 years they cooked breakfast? Do you look up to men in the church because maybe they've served as deacons? Do you look up to men in the church maybe because they, they've served as ushers? If you look up to men for any of those reasons, those are wrong. You see, those are things that they do. You need to look up to godly men for who they are, not just the things that they do tangibly. Why don't we start looking up to men who are godly, who wrap their lives around this book, and they don't just give lip service to it, but they actually live it out. Why don't we look up to men who train up their children in righteousness, not just travel league ball? Why don't we look up to men not just because they can hunt and they can fish, but because they are able to, to, to read and understand God's word and pass it to the next generation? You see, those sorts of things are not the things happening in churches across America. We look up to men because we want to have wildlife suppers. And the guy who can shoot the most wildlife is the man who speaks naturally, not the man who actually lives his life, according to this book. This is an incredibly difficult task that I'm talking to you about. In closing, 
Let me give you a couple different scriptures just to show you tangible ways that God wants us to raise the next generation. So I know we're, we're, we're getting a little bit late, but I don't want to just talk to you about how bad of fathers we've been. I want to give you some God-given ways that God shows us how to be good fathers. Exodus chapter 12. Now, you're welcome to turn here. For the sake of time, I'm going to get there and I'm going to read it. We're in Exodus chapter 12, verse 24. And I've got three more scriptures after that that we're going to read to show you ways that God set up for us to raise up the next generation. Exodus 12:24. This is right after the Passover. This is after God has, uh, has set the people free. They've had the Passover. And God tells them that he wants them to have the Passover meal each year. And listen to why he wants them to do this. Verse 24. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. It will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he promised that you shall observe this right. And it will come about. Listen to this. So you're going to go in the land and you're going to observe this meal. You're going to have the Passover meal and listen to the purpose of the Passover meal. Verse 26. And it will come about when your children will say to you, what does this right mean to you that you shall say? It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshipped. Dads, how many times have your kids asked you something that the church does? They say, Dad, why do we do that? And you go, I don't know, ask your mom. God gives you things. We have traditions We have all sorts of things that we do just for the reason so that your kids will take part and they will ask you, Dad, why do we do that? Now, you can be the dad who says, I don't know, go ask your mom. Or you can be a godly man of God who, if he doesn't know, said, Son, I don't know. Let me find out and I'll tell you tomorrow. Don't ask your mom, though, because I'm your dad and I'm going to tell you. Because I'm leading this family spiritually, not your mom. Now I'll go over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. You're going to get a little bit more of the same. Deuteronomy 4 verse 9. This is, this is when God recounts the giving of the Ten Commandments. He's, uh, he's done all sorts of things. And listen to this. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 9. Only give heed to yourselves and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, that they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. So remember everything that you've been through and make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Don't keep them to yourself. Remember the day your excuse me. Remember the day you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Dads, you are not a godly dad if you have never taught your children to fear the Lord. Maybe you're here and you don't know what it means to fear the Lord yourself. Learn and then teach your kids. Your kids should be more afraid of God than they are of you. When mom says, you're going to get it when dad gets home. 
Dads, you should in the same sentence be able to say, Son, if you don't get your butt in gear, you're going to get it when you go home to meet our Lord. And that should scare them. That should scare them because it scares you. You, Dad, should be doing things because you want to be found faithful when the Lord returns or when you die to meet Him. And your kids should naturally respond the same way to God. And they will do that by merely imitating you. Here we go. So they should learn to fear me so that they could teach their children. He says in verse 11, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens. Darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he, God, declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments so that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess. Men, if God has shown you anything, you tell your kids about it and then you live it out. Don't keep it to yourself. If God tells you to pursue a certain vocation, you tell your kids about it, you pursue that vocation and you do it under the Lord and then your kids will do the same thing. They will follow what you do. And so maybe God calls you to sell your things and go be a missionary. Go do it. And then when God calls your sons and daughters to do something, they'll do the same thing. Why? Because they saw dad do it. Listen, don't keep your spiritual life to yourself as parents. You've got to be somewhat transparent and raise up the next generation of Christ followers. And that is your job. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This verse is called the Shema. That's just something, I just told you that so that when double jeopardy comes around, you can look like a stud and win. This is the most, most looked to verse by the Jews. It says, Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. This is chapter 6, verse 4. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. Another principle for being a godly father or a godly mother. It doesn't just happen right here. Anybody can put their kid in the car and get them to a pretty building. A real, a real godly parent will do this. They'll teach them diligently to your sons. And you'll talk of them when you sit in your house. When you are sitting in your house, dad, what are you talking about? Mom, what are you talking about? When the grandkids come over, what are you talking about? Is it politics or is it God? Talk about them when you sit down and when you walk by the way. So not just when you're sitting in your house, but when you're going places, when you drive your car. What are you talking about? Is it the radio or are you talking about God? When you lie down, what are you talking about? When you rise up, what are you talking about? The theme here 
in your life, whatever you're doing, what are you talking about? What are you diligently teaching your kids? This is a thing that grieves me beyond anything you can imagine. Mom and dad raise a child until they're 18 or 19. The child goes off to college and they completely fall off the wagon. And the parents come to my office as a youth pastor or to my office as the pastor. And they say, we don't know what happened to our children. I say, what happened? Well, they've got to college and they've gone crazy. We raised them, right? Just for a second, let's be honest and transparent and ask ourselves, is coming to church two hours on a Sunday really raising your kids right? You guys that are farmers, what if you just tended to your field two hours a week? Would that be enough? If you can't raise crops in two hours a week, heaven forbid you should try to raise kids godly in only two hours a week. Men, you want your children to follow after the things of God? How are you doing it? Are you only coming now to church and to Sunday school? Or are you maybe coming on Wednesday night when we offer a whole nother service that's built for you to grow closer to the Lord? What are you doing to grow the next generation? Lastly, this is the verse where we're going to camp out at the very end. Deuteronomy chapter 31, and we'll be done. This is something that God did that was really, really unique. If I did this, you would throw me out. You would say that would never work in a million years. This is what he does. Then Moses, Deuteronomy 31, verse 10. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, debts at the Feast of Booths. See, if you were here on Wednesday night, you would understand exactly what's going on here. At the Feast of Booths. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law, the book of Deuteronomy. When the people of Israel come, what do I want you to do, Moses? What do I want you to do? Read the book of Deuteronomy. All 33 chapters, 34 chapters. Read it. How many of you guys would show up to a service where I read the book of Deuteronomy? Don't raise your hands because you'll make somebody feel bad. How many of you, if I read the book of Deuteronomy out loud, would bring your kids to that service? You would say, no, you'd have to provide a nursery or I wouldn't come. Listen to why you read the book of the law. Assemble the people. This is verse 12. The men and the women and children and the alien who is in your town. So get the men, the women and the children. Remember when I told you last week, children ages 1 to 12. And the alien in your town in order that they may hear and learn the fear and learn, excuse me, in order that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children, ages 1 to 12, will hear. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land on which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. You want to teach your kids to fear the Lord? Read his word to them. Do not try to raise godly children apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the people were to show up and they were going to read the book of Deuteronomy. Simply read it. Not sing, not dance, not give you tokens of appreciation for coming. You show up, they read the book of Deuteronomy, and the kids learn to fear the Lord. 
simply by reading the book of Deuteronomy. You see, the Holy Spirit does wild things in people's lives when his word is being used and read. And if you're trying to raise your kids apart from this book and reading them this book, you're failing. Because you can't raise a godly generation without the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, dads, you want to take step one towards being a godly granddad or godly dad. Don't set this down when you get home. Put it on the table. And when you finish lunch after church, read it. When you finish, when you go to put the kids to bed, read it. When you're sitting there and you don't know what to do as a family, you don't have time to hunt, you don't have time to fish, you've just got time to sit there until it's time to leave, pick this thing up and read it. Get your family in this thing. Men, it's your job to lead the family. If you are the the president or the CEO of a company and the company fails, it's your fault because you're the leader. Men, if your family is not succeeding spiritually, it's your fault because you're the leader. Following me? It's easy to watch the news and to blame our country for the situation that we're in because of poor leadership, right? Why don't we take a solid look at our families and man up and take responsibility for the leadership that we're giving as men? So men... Don't exasperate your children, but grow them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. And that's just a a basic intro to how we can start doing it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would be men of integrity who raise the next generation to be Christ followers. Lord, I pray that we would never, never be viewed by our children as hypocrites. Lord, I pray that we would never be viewed as spectators, but God, I pray that we would be diligent in raising up the next generation of Christ followers. Lord, I pray that we would take seriously this responsibility. Lord, I pray that as a result of the last few sermons that families would begin to pray together. I pray that families would begin to read your word together. And God, I pray that families would ultimately be drawn closer to you together. And Lord, I pray that as a result that the church would be able to reap the benefits of that. And so, God, make us into the people that we need to be. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you guys would stand for our song of invitation, Jonathan's going to lead us. Uh, you're welcome to come down and pray during the song of invitation. You're welcome to, to speak with me. I can, I'll be more than happy to pray for you also. If you want to take the first step in, in, in doing a better job leading your family. If you're here and you're interested in in joining fellowship with our church, you're also able to do that at this time as well. And so as Jonathan leads, you guys do whatever God leads you to do. You guys can be seated just for a moment. We've got our, uh, they counted the ballots in the back, and I'll go ahead and tell you so that uh, you don't have to call around and find out. Our uh, deacons for the the next three-year term were uh, Boyd Copeland, Blunt Knowles, and Milton Tadlock. So one more time, Boyd Copeland, Blunt Knowles, and Milton Tadlock. Gentlemen, we're glad to have you. Looking forward to it. And uh, I'll give this back to you. And uh, last but not least, uh, Letha, let me pronounce it right, McLawhorn. All right. She's uh, come to join fellowship with us. Uh, we're glad to have her. If you guys gladly accept her into our fellowship, let them know and be saying aye. aye. All right. As I close this in prayer, uh, you guys come on down here and uh, make her feel welcome. Good to have you, Letha. Let's, uh, let's stand together and pray. 
Father, thank you again for your magnificent word. Thank you for all of the blessings you give us. And Lord, thank you for not just giving us blanket commandments and leaving us to ourselves, but thank you for uh, giving us examples to follow in Scripture. Lord, sometimes you learn more from a bad example than you do a good example. And so, Lord, thank you for that as well. Lord, we are incredibly thankful that you are not continually writing your word using us as examples. But, Lord, we're grateful we can look back to, uh, to older examples. And so, Father, go with us throughout this week. Help us to be the men and women that, that you've called us to be. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.